This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of March 30th, 2015, and this is Michael Howley welcoming you to episode 221 of Defender Radio. Some 500 years ago, Leonardo da Vinci said water is the driving force of all nature. And today, that message needs to be spread. Not only are our oceans the last frontier of Earth-based exploration, they, along with our lakes and rivers, are the basis of all life on the planet. And these water systems are at risk. From drought in California to pollution of Canada's Great Lakes, water is an important topic that needs to be addressed. And this week, we have two experts prepared to do just that. On this episode, we hear from Bill Pazard, a climatologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, who has been studying the California drought, and the possible solutions available, from beavers to centralized management. Following that, we connect with Liet Podolsky, a staff biologist with EcoJustice, who are fighting to protect our lakes from a new threat, microbeads. Let's get started. At NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, the eyes of some of the best and brightest scientists are focused on the stars. But some are also focused right here on our own little planet. Bill Pazard is a climatologist at JPL, and has been studying the drought occurring in California. He joined Defender Radio to explain what the drought is, how it's going to impact the rest of North America, and the possible role beavers could play in bringing it to an end. Can you summarize what the situation is in California in terms of droughts and what's been making the headlines in these last weeks? Well, uh, really going back to the year 2000, uh, we've had serious punishing drought here in the American West. It's waxed and it's waned. This is our fourth year of really punishing drought. And, uh, of course, it's, it's had a huge impact. Uh, you know, California, for example, is uh, all by itself the seventh largest economy in the world. And uh, with the tremendous expansion in agriculture, population and industrial growth uh, we're pretty stressed out here absolutely um and there's been some very dire warnings coming out of jpl about what the future could look like well i think some of those uh were exaggerated uh you know r- right now uh the situation is is that uh with intelligent converse conservation uh we have uh, supplies to last us at least another three years here in uh, California. So uh, it's uh, it's dire, but it's not apocalyptic. That is significantly less fun, but it's probably good news. Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, it's it's, it's it's strange for me. I was born and raised around the Great Lakes. Um, the idea of not like, I can see water right now and. The idea to me of there being this kind of drought is very hard to fathom, uh, pun intended. Um, now, well, as I, I we drove look... uh, three blocks from Lake Michigan, you know. So okay. 
you know, the Lake Michigan waxed and waned and went up and down, but we never talked about drought back in Indiana. Absolutely, and it's the same here in Ontario. I mean, come August, there's probably more air in the moisture here than there is in the entire state of California. Um, but uh, I, I guess I, I need to ask about solutions. That, I think, is maybe what is most important at this point. Conservation is clearly number one priority. But when we talk about drought, we're not just talking about agriculture. We're talking about all of the wildlife across the states. Uh, and there are some very important ecosystems there. So what kind of solutions should lawmakers, policymakers, and private citizens be looking at to try and, if not solve the drought, then at least stave off some of the implications of it? Well, you know, these droughts are natural. They, they, they come. The last big drought we had was from 1945 to the late 70s. But, of course, uh, the population in California in 1950 was 10 million, whereas it's 40 million today. And with a tremendous growth in the economy as well as in agriculture. And so this drought, of course, is much more punishing than it was 50 or 60 years ago. And so, and, and I might say that there is a lot of water in California. We have tremendous infrastructure to move water around from the Colorado, from Northern California to Southern California. But the, uh, the issue really is, is how we allocate the water. And uh, in California, we're ruled by a series of archaic water laws they really go back to the 19th century. And uh, right now, uh, for instance, 25% of the water, and this is the good news, you'll like this, is 25% of the water goes to the environment. That means we have to keep the wetlands and the rivers healthy and their ecosystems maintained. But after that, agriculture gets 80% of the available water. And uh, that's based on these uh, old uh, laws that were written in the 18th century, 19th century. And, and so we really have to reevaluate what is an equitable distribution of water between urban, industrial, and agricultural users here in the state. Because, uh, you know, it is a semi-arid environment, and the nature and the size of the economy has dramatically changed. Absolutely. And um, it, it should be noted that California is one of the largest agricultural producers in the United States, if not the largest, I believe. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, I mean, we are an agricultural powerhouse, but uh, the nature of agriculture has changed. Much of agriculture in California has gone to luxury crops, almonds, walnuts, avocados. Uh, we produce an awful lot of rice, which we export to Asia. And that they're all very water intensive. Talking about wetlands, and that, and that's really where the draw for, for the fur bears comes in on this story. Uh, wetlands are truly a vital part of all ecosystems right across uh, the globe. And in Canada, we work very, very hard to try and protect them. But it's only really been in the last couple of decades that their full power has really come to be understood. and Something that I've been discussing with a lot of people in our world is um, governments using beavers to protect wetlands. 
Um, as I'm sure you know, beavers create wetlands. They create water in many ways. Um, but in California right now, it's against the law to relocate them to areas. Whereas in neighboring states, governments are actually going in and strategically placing beavers to build dams. Is that something, that kind of um, natural solution, the kind of thing that people should be looking at? Well, you know, beavers, uh, historically, they are really the heroes of droughts. Uh, but uh, in California and elsewhere in the world, beavers have been driven from their native ha habitats by uh, farmers, urban growth, mining interests. And uh, so, you know, there are shrinking populations of beavers uh, all over uh not only in the United States, but I think also in Canada. And, and of course, beavers are, you know, we all know them as the great dam builders. And so they really have the potential because they capture behind their dams large volumes of water, which really nourish the wetlands and all the birds and other land species that uh, inhabit these wetlands. And, uh, and not only that, uh, they, they provide uh, uh, water for uh, for even for livestock, uh, and, and and so in every way possible, you know the the beaver is really the hero of the drought. Well, I certainly hope that the uh, the government pays attention to that message. That's something that we uh, we are learning more and more about all the time. I was actually part of a seminar not long ago, and there was a, a lot of discussion on that and utilizing historic data, GIS, uh, and all kinds of things, and then saying if we put a beaver family here, um, in theory, all of this water will then be better, more or less, uh, to use unscientific terms. But uh, now to, to play the apocalyptic card, which you tried to dissuade me from, but I will not be swayed. Um, worst case scenario, big picture. Why should it matter in Canada what happens to California in terms of drought and water uh, resources? Well, you know, uh, just to, uh, before I address that question, you know, I have always uh, thought, uh, uh, the Canadians always like us to build oil pipelines out of Canada and the States. And now I've always been on the side where forget about the oil pipelines, we should build some water pipelines. Yep. Canada has the great uh, water resources in North America, and uh, we could build those pipelines into the American Southwest and even into northern Mexico and it would change the economy of all of North America. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, there just isn't enough money in there right now. Um, I, I, I think there is resistance on the part of the Canadians to sell us large volumes of water. Well, we're aware yeah. of how important water is to our future. Um, and when you start looking at how our government has treated uh, our natural resources in the search for oil... Um, you know, it's, it's pretty horrific what, uh, what could happen when you start thinking dystopia and so on. Um, and, uh, I guess sort of the final thought as people hear about this drought, they're going to move forwards. As I said, this has been in the news. Some of it may have been exaggerated, but water is such an important resource to, to all of us and not just 
humanity, but to, to the ecosystem from the smallest microbes up to the grizzly bears. What do you want people to understand about the need for water conservation or, or even just water awareness? Well, when we look at the great civilization that we have built in North America and we look back in history, the limiting natural resource has always been water. The rise and fall of civilizations have teetered on the amount of water available to sustain those civilizations during periods when there's plenty of water, civilizations thrive. And then you go into these multi-decade or even century-long droughts and uh, civilizations cannot adapt, as well as ecosystems. And, and, and so, uh, you know, water is uh, the most precious resource and it should be managed most intelligently. All right. And uh, now here, here's the good news is, is that uh, these droughts, they wax and they wane, and they're often followed by decades where you have heavier than normal rainfall and snowpack, and that will happen, all right? But in the interim, we have to manage our water resources more intelligently and rather than managing on a local level and on laws that are based on what seemed right in the 19th century, we have to do like countries, dry countries like Israel and Australia do and centralize water management so that every aspect of the economy, agriculture, industry, the great urban centers, will all have sustainable water resources. To learn more about NASA's JPL and the fascinating work they do, visit jpl.nasa.gov. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. Are you into sci-fi? And like comic books, video games, movies, and books related to it? How about science? And like to keep up with space news or technology inspired by shows like Star Trek? Maybe strange subjects like aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, or conspiracies? How about board games or RPGs? If you answered yes to any or all of those, then you may like the shows of GalacticNetcasts.com. Our lineup includes The Alien Invasion, The Sci-Fi Geeks Club, Weird World Weekly, Adventure Party, and Galactic Net Bites for people with shorter attention spans. Where can I find all these, you may be asking? Well, the answer is galacticnetcasts.com. Again, galacticnetcasts.com. Hi, I'm Dave Nelson, founder and host of this podcast network, 
And I'd like to thank you in advance for listening. Do you like beer? Do you like business? Do you like businesses that make beer? Then you'll love this new show. It's the Beer Trail Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Price, and we're going to travel through the world of craft beer and talk to the breweries and see how they got started and what inspired them to make their beer. So check it out at thebeertrailpodcast.com and tell your friends and hope to see you on the trail. This is Defender Radio. We're talking water this week, and we can't do that without a discussion on microbeads. The tiny plastic beads are used in all manner of products, but of particular concern is their application in personal care products. EcoJustice is one of the many groups fighting to protect our lakes from microbeads, which are causing an immense amount of pollution and damaging the delicate life systems of the Great Lakes. A staff scientist, Leah Podolsky, joined Defender Radio to talk microbeads and what we can do about them. Can you give me just sort of a general overview as to what microbeads actually are? Yeah, so microbeads, um, they're part of a group of uh, particles called microplastics. Um, Microbeads are defined as about five millimeters in in diameter. Um, The microbeads that we see in personal care products, which is the focus of of ours, um, they tend to be roughly uh, half a millimeter in diameter. So there's these tiny plastic particles um, that are intentionally added to personal care products, so cosmetics such as um, uh, facial washes, body gel, toothpaste. There's this little you would recognize them. So if you're using an exfoliant uh, type product, you would see these little these little beads, um, and you could feel them. Um, what happens is they um, they're too small to be uh, treated at wastewater treatment plants, um, and these wastewater treatment plants are not designed uh, to remove or to to treat uh, these microbeads. So what happens is that they get so they they're added to products that are basically designed. You use them, you wash, and they go down the drain, um, and they pass right through the wastewater treatment plants, um, unfiltered, untreated, not removed and they essentially get discharged directly into waterways such as lakes and rivers in the marine environment. Yeah, and to put in context um, how many of these may be getting out there, uh, the EcoJustice uh, website and blog on the subject shows um, that one tube of facial scrub was found to contain more than 330,000 microbeads. Is that sort of at the high end? Is that the low end? How does that fall? Um, we haven't done any of the primary research on this, uh, so we've looked at uh, other groups and organizations and scientists who have. Um, that was found by one study. Uh, I think my understanding is that's quite a typical example. Um, in one tube of facial scrub, for example, uh, hundreds of thousands of these particles would be found. Um, and the science is starting to show, um, and I can get some numbers for you, um, that millions, millions of these particles are being found in, for example, one square kilometer of uh, areas of the Great Lakes. Yeah, that's it's very concerning and very frightening. Uh, now, what happens once these are in the lakes, uh, once they're in rivers, what do they do uh, to the environment, to the, to the um, organisms that live in those habitats? Well, they, they, 
contributes towards habitat uh, pollution. Um, plastics in the environment are just generally not good for for the environment, um, for the habitat. Um, and what happens is uh, these tiny plastic particles are mistaken by animals, by wildlife that are in these these uh, marine and freshwater environments as food. Um, so all the way through the food web, so small invertebrates and plankton uh, and fish will consume these uh, these plastic uh, microbeads. Um, what happens along the way as well is that these microbeads, um, they act as sponges for other toxic chemicals such as DDT and PCBs, um, very toxic contaminants that are harmful to both wildlife and humans and that are persistent in these environments. Uh, so the microbes will will basically absorb in a, uh, these toxic contaminants, which will adhere to the surfaces of these microbes. Wildlife then ingest them. They they move up along the food chain. So smaller uh, smaller prey will get eaten by larger predators, and eventually by the fish uh, that humans will consume. So it gets passed along the way. What happens as well is once inside these uh, a species inside an animal. The toxic contaminants that have stuck to the outside of the, the microbead itself will leach out into the guts, for example, of fish species. Um, this affects their digestion. In some cases, it has been shown to uh, basically um, jam up their insides and lead to starvation because these animals can't feed any, any longer. Okay, and uh, were these microbeads originally designed for this use, to, to be used sort of as exfoliants in personal care products, or did they come from somewhere else? Uh, there's all different forms of microplastics used for various purposes. Microbeads uh, have been specifically designed for use in, in uh, personal care products as exfoliants. Um, they have abrasive properties, uh, so that's why they've been added. Uh, the irony is that there are many now natural alternatives, um, oatmeal and uh, lots of biodegradable natural alternatives that can be added um, that are just as effective. Well then why why are companies continuing to use the plastic forms? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in fact, a lot of companies are given all the attention that's been, the attention and uh, the knowledge that, that we now have about microbes, um, uh, a lot of these cosmetic manufacturers and uh, retailers are voluntarily phasing out microbeads because because of the readily available bio, biodegradable alternatives there really is no reason to use these plastic microbeads um, although some will continue to use it i imagine it's because they can be they're cheaper um, they're already in production lines um, so we will still see some manufacturers continue to use them while others are voluntarily phasing them out um, oh, and I do see that numerous uh, states are trying to, uh, to to ban the use of microbeads or the production of them. Um, and there is a private member's bill on the floor, though PMBs typically don't do too well, or traditionally they don't do too well in the Ontario House. Uh, nor, uh, I don't think there's any legislation on the table in any other province um, at this point. Now, I guess I, I got to ask, and it's the journalist in me and the zombie fan in me, um, what, what is the worst case scenario? I mean, if like right now, uh, again, the, the blog reads that 20% of plastic pollution in the Great Lakes, which is massively important, not just for humans, but for the entire ecosystem of Eastern Canada, um, up to 20% of the plastic pollution is made up of microbeads. So what, what are we looking at in terms of apocalyptic future if we don't stop mm -hmm. using these? 
Well, I don't think it's quite that dire, but um, we'll, we'll... They, they could lead to the beginning of the zombies. I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying, it's possible. Yeah, I think what we'll see is uh, a continuous accumulation. Um, the longer these products are used and the longer they stay within the life cycle and the, the ecosystem, uh, we'll see a continued accumulation of these, uh, these plastic pollutants in the water. Um, uh, I think the voluntary phasing out by manufacturers is a really good first step. Um, we probably will start to see a decrease in the concentration, uh, but uh, you're right in that several uh, several jurisdictions in the United States have uh, started to pass ban. Uh, Illinois and New Jersey have been the first two, um, so they're banning the, the manufacture and sale of, uh, of plastic microbes and cosmetic products. Um, Canada has yet to follow suit. Uh, you're right, Ontario just uh, introduced a private message bill. I believe it's in the second week now. Um, so we'll see where that goes. And what we've done, EcoJustice, uh, has uh, submitted uh, a request on behalf of several organizations uh, to the Federal Minister of the Environment requesting uh, that microbeads be added to what's called the Priority Substances List, which is uh, a list established under the uh, Canadian Environmental Protection Act. Um, and what addition to this list would do is um, it would uh, make it mandatory for the, uh, for the government to assess microbes for their toxicity. And if they find it to be toxic, to add it to the toxic substances list, which would allow it, uh, its regulation and uh, eventual ban. In Canada. Well, that would be ideal. Um, now, I've got two sort of follow-up questions here. One is, is it possible to clean up these microbeats? We know they're in the Great Lakes. We know they're bad. Um, so is there a way that we, uh, as a society, can clean the water and rid it of microbeats? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I'm actually not sure of the answer to that. I'm not sure if there are remediation um, uh uh, if there's a capacity to be able to do that, I'm not sure how you would remove them from the water. Um, I'm not sure. All right, and that's uh, rather alarming in itself. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the final follow-up, and I think maybe is what that I could have asked at the beginning, but I like to make people wait, is how do you know if microbeads are in a product that you are looking at on the shelf of a store? Another very good question. Um, uh, I my understanding is, uh, I think you can probably tell from appearance, if they're, they're large enough to see, they're not microscopic, um, so you can tell just by the, the texture of the product if it has kind of rough beads uh, in it. Um, the material, the, the, uh, it's made from polyethylene, um, so that might be uh, listed on the ingredient list on a product. Um, Alternatively, I would imagine that if you looked at certain products and it listed something like uh, apricot seed kernels or um, other kinds of natural beads, uh, it, that might be an indication that it did not contain microbeads. All right, but I guess under current legislation, that's another issue is that there isn't a label that says contains microbeads. Not to my knowledge. Um, not to my knowledge. All right. And if people want to learn more about this or they want to get involved in terms of letter writing petitions and so on, what should they be looking at doing online? Uh, well, they can look to, for information. They can, they can certainly look to our website, ecojustice.ca. Um, the groups uh, that are also involved in this, uh, in, this uh, in our submission um, uh, is Environmental Defense 
and Lake Ontario Waterkeeper and the Ottawa Riverkeepers. Um, and these are three of uh, numerous groups who are all working on this issue. To learn more about the microbead issue or other work being done by EcoJustice, visit ecojustice.ca. That's all we have time for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of Defender Radio. Until next time, this is Michael Howe reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.